0: Hey, what's up, fellow rock stars? This is Tushar bringing you Rocking Entrepreneur podcast, The Groceries, and the very last episode for this year. Wishing you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year as well. To talk a little bit about today's guest, it's Erica Abraham Myers, who who moved from the U.S. all the way to found Animal Aid Unlimited. And I'm so excited to have our episode today about Animal Aid Unlimited. And we go over what the founders did before they moved to India. How did they start Animal Aid Unlimited India? How did they get the funding? How you can get your funding? What are the various sources of funding for an NGO if you're interested in starting your own NGO? How to pitch for these funding opportunities? And what's behind the scenes of making the incredible videos that Animal Aid Unlimited has grown to so much popularity with? All right, without any further ado, here's today's show. Hello fellow rock stars. Do you wish to start your own podcast and want it to sound like a professional? We have created a 10-day free how to start your podcast course at podcastguru.com. Get familiar with the complete process and get ready to rock your podcast. Visit podcastgaro.com from the show notes of this episode and record your first episode in 10 days.
1: Don't wait. Don't wait as long as I did. I was in my 40s before I started giving to my cause and I look back on my life and I think, if only I had done it earlier. Because it's been the greatest thrill and the most beautiful fun that I ever, ever could have dreamed of. So do not wait.
0: Hello, fellow rock stars. I'm your host, Dushar Sharma from Rocking Entrepreneur Podcast, where we chat with Indian entrepreneurs from India and all over the world. And today I'm so excited to have Erica with me. Erica, are you ready to rock?
1: I sure am ready to rock. Thank you, Tushar.
0: Yes. While traveling in India, when you observe all the stray dogs and cows, have you ever said this to yourself, wish I could rescue this animal from their misery? Our guest today, Erica Abraham Myers, not only asked that question, but moved all the way from Seattle in USA to Rajasthan to set up a nonprofit organization that does exactly this. Animal Aid Unlimited has grown tremendously over the last several years into this amazing, loving refuge for the homeless, treat animals, treating about 150 animals every day. Welcome to the show, Erica. I've given a fellow rock stars a brief introduction, so take some time and describe a bit more about yourself, your professional and your personal life.
1: Thank you, Tushar. Well, it's a pleasure to describe uh, the gestation of animal aid, and you said it completely right. It was really born out of being a regular tourist in India and seeing so many beautiful street animals and coming gradually to realize that when all was well, many of them lived happy, engaged, stimulating lives. But when they became hurt or or ill, they had absolutely nowhere to turn. And I'm sure a lot of travelers have felt the same sense of impotence and confusion when they've seen an injured animal and had no idea what to do. So when we first started traveling to India, it was just because we loved the what little we understood of the culture. It was back in the 1990s, and we loved the language. And I studied the language. when I'm 60 now, and I was 35, when we got kind of serious about take, trying to Uh, infuse our lives with more things India. And we extended our stays longer. We had a young daughter at that time who, who was five or six years old. And the beauty and serenity of the animals on the street was one of the biggest reasons why we loved India and loved it for our daughter I, I we were as parents, people that thought that and think that animals should play a huge part in the lives of, of all kids because they're such an essential part of the nat- of the natural world and they're so much fun and there's they're so gorgeous in every way. So it was it was not quite it's not quite the way it it happened that we moved specifically to help animals. We were on a path to move to India already, and it was only necessity as the mother of invention that made me realize that there were no organizations or people that were that had enough resources to help them and that if i was going to help any animals i'd have to look to myself
0: all right erica you had such an amazing journey and i want to go through the journey once again in a chronological order uh What what was the moment or the story that inspired you to move to India and say, okay, this is this settles it and we are going to move to India? What what was that? What was that moment or that story behind making that decision?
1: The very first time that I arrived in Bombay, I was 30. And I'd been resisting coming to India because somehow I was afraid that there would be a kind of poverty that would be too confronting. And I think I had based my expectations of India on some old National Geographic magazines that I'd seen as a child or something. I mean, just not well educated. But the moment we landed in Bombay, uh, and I saw the the colorful bustle of the people and the animals and the cars and the buildings and the variety of old and new. Um, I was so charmed like instantly by an energy that I felt in a public life and the presence of people on the street that that it just gave me an immediate charge. And I honestly, I just said to my husband, I want to, I want to move here.
0: Amazing. And what was the, so was that the motive to move to India, or uh, did you had you not thought about what you're going to do in India before you I, moved to I, India?
1: To sure, I think the the less romantic response is that it was so cheap to live in India, and we were uh, my husband at that time was uh, about oh in his fifties. We we were trying to save money so that we didn't have to work as as much as we were working and we both worked in kind of a communications field and development and fundraising. And we were just looking. And so part of it was really just the financial benefit. We thought we, we could work quite a bit less and have a, a modest but very comfortable life in India. And I thought it was safer, a safer place to raise our daughter. It hurts me so much when I hear, when I saw the, the media's um, treatment around the world of the Delhi rape case There is domestic violence in India, but there is very little violence uh, perpetrated among strangers. It happens, of course, but I think at a remarkably lower level than it does in America. And there are not guns being toted around by the average Joe in India. It's very peaceful. There's not road rage. People don't fight for no reason and get all bullied and stuff. I mean, it, it doesn't happen very much. And it even didn't happen very much in the village where we, we've lived, we lived in a village for 10 years and there was occasional conflicts between neighbors, but it just was a nothing compared to that feeling of tension and anxiety and lack of safety that I feel in America because of the presence of guns and drug addiction and a kind of an aggressive, scary um, trigger point in people of getting outraged and on the road. So I, I wanted to mention that because I think it's surprising to people that to raise our daughter, we I only had one, in India seemed a much safer environment <clears throat> than to do so even in Seattle, which is known for being kind of provincial and kind of a genteel place. But I didn't feel as safe there.
0: And you still hold that belief even to this day after having lived in India for several years now?
1: Yes, yeah, absolutely. I, I hold it even more now, and and uh, I'm I I adore living in India. I don't agree with all of the political, you know, all the policies and all all of the, um, you know, I can't say I I love every aspect of public life in India, but I certainly do love in general um, the the Indian culture and. And I, and I just appreciate it deeply for what it is for children most of the time, what, what the benefits that come from living in joined or extended families, having grandma and grandpa around and uncles and aunties, and the basic health of having families that um, take care of the basic needs of, of their family members. And, and it's got a flip side that's not so positive because I think in India – concern about public spaces is at a much lower level than it is in America. So you do have garbage and you don't have parks well-maintained and you don't have roads. But I think person to person, the smiles on children's faces and the lack of hazing. I don't know if you all know what hazing is, is, but it's bullying in schools is so much less in India than it is in in America. There's so much um, more tolerance of differences and, in people, um, maybe not in your own family. Maybe there are very strict, you know, expectations of other family members. But that also brings with it, like everything in India, is so paradoxical. But it also brings in a, a lot of uh, families that take absolute responsibility for their other members. You don't see very many homeless people in India. They've got homes. They might be dirt poor, but they sure have homes. And people waiting for them.
0: Amazing. I think this is such an interesting topic. We could spend hours and hours discussing about how people from outside can adjust to India. But uh, let me switch gears a little bit and ask you this so once you moved to India how how long of a time did you spend before you decided on okay uh, Rajasthan Udaipur is the place that we want to stay and this is what we want to do open up an animal shelter
1: Uh, coming to Udaipur and staying here was easy for me because I our daughter made some little friends here when she was just very young and so Traveling was a drag for her. She didn't like it at all. And so, because it because this particular place was plenty beautiful for us and a nice mid sized, small five hundred thousand people, four hundred thousand, um, it just seemed perfect to plant roots and go deeper rather than broader. There's so many ways to experience a culture, but we just wanted to. I just decided, and uh, let's just stay put. It's got it it's got a plenty rich enough fabric of of society we were here for about five years too short before um, the idea of helping animals really uh, took serious hold of of me and um, and that was probably born of the fact that we were spending so much more time here we had built a few rooms into a house in this village of Hawala, and I started to have relationships with the animals near the house. So I couldn't anymore kid myself that they were okay when I turned the corner and and disappeared, which you can do, which you do when you're staying in a hotel or you're you're not there for very long or only there for a couple of months. You can uh, not face the fact that no, you see all you know you see all aspects of the animal's lives and so you realize that if this animal is suffering now it's going to be suffering worse tomorrow and that um there, you just slowly start to realize what a city's infrastructure is all about. And I just started then to, 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 to sort of try to explore what resources the government hospital had for street dogs because there were some ill ones near the house. And that was when I realized that there were very few resources. It wasn't really a question of money. It was a question of training and um, shelter space and, and understanding among those doctors who had mostly been trained for um, – Enhancing milk production and cows taking care of farmed animals like goats, Um, that's really the, the basis of their interest and that's true even today. There wasn't a culture and there really isn't a culture in this region of pet ownership. So they didn't understand about dogs. I remember taking a dog that had a gynecological problem and the vet would not touch her, would not touch the dog and was going to try to diagnose without touching. It was like it, that; those kind of um, attitudes were clearly not going to help us. And so I knew that I was going to have to hire hire a vet and that we might have to I realized pretty soon we would have to orient and train that vet in a whole new way, so that and the that there would be an understanding that animals were not here to serve our purposes and be exploited by us, but were here for their own reasons. And I already had that animal rights attitude at the age of forty, but I'd never pressed it into service and tried to physically accomplish anything with that ethic. Uh, so, okay. so that's what. Uh, That's why Udiper was it. It was just, it was a wonderful little city.
0: Okay, great. And how were you sustaining yourself for these five years before uh, Animal Aid Unlimited actually officially started?
1: We worked as consultants, as fundraising consultants for different institutions that were nonprofits. So uh, mostly hospitals and universities. And um, both my husband and I, he had a, his own consultancy, and I didn't have my own consultancy. I was more like staff to another consultant. So we would do feasibility studies about new capital projects um, in hospitals or in schools of some kind, and, and I worked for the Seattle Public Schools for a few, couple of years on a – it's called a bond issue or a levy. And so we we kind of just were – we weren't exactly working part-time, but we were working um, for limited periods of time and had the flexibility to pick and choose our time off to some ex- to some extent.
0: Great. And um, I imagine over these five years, like you mentioned, you had uh, some experiences with the animals and that made you decide, okay, maybe we can do this. Uh, what was that moment? Uh how did you? How did you feel at that moment? And what what were the actions you took? Uh, I
1: I think I can I don't think I can. I pinpoint a precise moment, but I knew that everything in life is um, is facilitated by your ability to communicate both your achievements and your shortcomings. And I knew that I was a communicator. I had wanted to be an, a writer all my life and I did mainly writing in the different jobs that I had. And since I had already written many funding proposals for other NGOs, I think it's important that I should mention that I knew how to how to write a grant proposal. So that gave me a lot of confidence previous to previous to loving uh or or to to deciding to actually work for animals, I had never, I had never absolutely like loved or identified nearly as closely with the other projects. I, I, of course I respect education and I respect healthcare for humans um, and I respect community theater and other, you know, environmental issues, but they didn't grab me. And so I didn't independent of my um, employers. I didn't, independently pursue serving those interests. So when I got the buzz about animals and realized this is the one thing that I love most of all, why don't I apply the years of experience I have persuading other people to, to join other causes, why don't I do the same thing for animals? I, I love them so much. And that was a big aha moment that I said, I, I don't have any money and I don't have all these resources that actually, um, you know, would stem from being an Indian and, be, be, you know, identifying as an Indian. But let's see how much I can apply in this culture. Let's see. Let's just test it out and see and, and, and be a learner, Figure out what works, what doesn't work. Uh, In one of the examples, I do a lot of vegan outreach. And um, the American vegan outreach effort is done a lot through leafleting and expressing problems for animals in a leafleting mode, but through written communication. That may not be as effective in India because people are a a lot more oral and visual um, or oral I should say like they listen to things and they and they discuss things they're not as much perhaps as inclined to read a leaflet and be changed by it I'm just speculating I don't actually have marketing data but I just mean that's an example of something that you have to learn about the place you're in can you apply to this demographic what is suitable in the, on the American scene or in the European scene so I knew I had the I had the brains to know that I couldn't just sort of rubber stamp my previous experience here and, and expect uh, results and consequences that were the same, but I knew that I had to try and I knew that I was probably clever enough to learn how to modify some p- parts of my behavior to blend in more and be more successful here in India
0: amazing such a powerful message fellow rock stars what is that makes you excited what is that makes you passionate think about it dig deep and start working on it so erica you talk about the grant proposals uh are you telling me that there are actually grant proposals that people who are interested in starting up their own ngos can apply to and get funding and is that how you guys started off
1: yes that is uh i i would i i think that Writing a grant proposal is very similar to writing a business plan. It it forces you to take stock of, to, to identify what your need is and to explain to another person or entity or organization what it is that you have and why they should why they should support you, why you can make use of their donation. You need to research your Uh, the organizations that you're applying to, to to see if their mission statement is harmonious with what your mission statement is. And whether they, you know, you have to understand how, what are their resources and what kind of grants have they given other people and for what, so you have to do some homework. And then you have to look at your own needs and say, well, let's say that um, you need simultaneously many things. And so you don't want to uh, let's say I need five kennels or I need five new hospital beds. I'm, I'm working in a human charity, let's say, or for blind children or something. And you, 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 you're looking through your Google search about what uh, the mission statements of various organizations are, and you see that, aha, this one has a lot of resources, but they're more interested in education. So you look at what you're doing and saying, well, is there an educational aspect? I need 10 hospital beds, but is there an educational aspect in our work? Are we going to schools to try to s- tell people, you know, some some behavior about uh, about their own healthcare, or, or you're, you're saying don't drink alcohol or whatever. You have to look creatively at your own program and see if you can find a way to present your need, um, highlighting the places where it matches what that potential donor is interested in. So it doesn't mean fake it or change what your needs are, but you have to really scrutinize yourself and them to say, is there a marriage potentially here? Can I do something that makes that donor happy? Uh, uh, um, or am I doing? And is that the right place for me to ask? A lot of people, beginning with in fundraising, think that what you're doing is just asking in the blind and begging, and that's not at all the case. You're 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 really trying to articulate what it is that you do, and why you do it, how you do it, and find a person that cares about that, but who doesn't have the time or the skills to do it himself or herself and and you're you're helping them realize their dream. You're finding people that you're not creating an interest in in blind children and them you're finding the people that already had it and here you have a school for the blind and why this would this could potentially make them very happy to know that you're doing the things they want to do and can't.
0: So so, say, so suppose if I'm interested in starting my own NGO, um, are you recommending that I find someone like you who actively works on these grants, or is there a place that I could look up and submit my own uh, proposal for funding?
1: Uh, great question, Tushar. Many of the organizations that are grant-making organizations have a application form that takes you by the hand and leads you through the thing that a good or application needs. So uh, a layperson definitely does not need the help of a professional fundraiser to do that. All they need to do is answer the questions. And so they'll start by, say, you know, they'll ask you, what is your organizational capacity? How much funds have you already raised for this project? Why, how do you think you're going to actually realize this goal? And in what amount of time? What percentage of the thing you're asking me uh, what is the percentage of the total that you're asking me? People don't want to be the only sole funder. They want to know that there are other people that also have the confidence. So, the good, so most of the bigger organizations, Tushar, will really help you by, because their application form won't leave any, too much room for you to, to um, just drone on about your plans and dreams and I could woulda, gonna. It's really saying, what have you done already? And if you, were a, if you have a new NGO and you don't have a big track record, that's okay. But you still have to honestly say, okay, I've, I've recruited three friends and we are picking up garbage by the lake. We don't have a vehicle, uh, but we go every Sunday. Here's some photos of me and my friends picking garbage on the lake. And I really, we need a vehicle to pick or we need, you know, the supplies to, to, to get from A to B. And this isn't our long-term plan. This is a short-term plan. But... Uh, you can, in other words, by simply and directly stating what your resources are and what you have done with them, as limited as they are, just say, we've only been doing this for three months, but we can't do more without some help. And this is why we've chosen this thing that we need, because we think it's a strategic leverage point that will bring us to a, another level of our work. That's, um, that's what you have to do in grant writing.
0: Okay. Um, if you're okay, uh, may I ask who was the funder for uh, Animal Aid India Limited when you guys started off, and how much was the funding uh, round or the funding amount that you guys got? Uh, I
1: I almost immediately applied to Humane Society International and uh, World Society for the Protection of Animals organizations that were um, inter- that had international. Uh, geographic restrictions or they, they did not have geographic restrictions that were local because that's one of the first things that people need to look at. Many, many organizations have, they, they say right on their website what those restrictions are and some of them have to do with where you are. So I applied and was successful in getting grants for like $5,000 from the Humane Society And I think I got $2,000 from Whisper right away. There was uh, a charity in Australia that that gave us money. There was a very small charity called Summerlee Foundation in, in, uh, I think it's in Texas, actually, who gave us a, a couple of thousand dollars for a vehicle, a rescue vehicle. This was back in 2002. We had zero track record. And these funders understood that and were big enough or bold enough to Um, donate on the basis, I think, of the credibility established by my specific communication with them. And it reminds me, Tushar, of um, a trend in the development world that I think is, for everybody, it's worth noting. Having personal contact with the head of your NGO is what a donor really needs to have, because at the end of the day, a lot of times what they're funding is the intelligence and flexibility and uh, the 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 asset of the person at the head of the organization and if they think that person's savvy and and honest and has integrity that goes a long way too but that that person's going to have to have communication skills to to build the trust and confidence of the of the organization but you need so but my point is That, I think, is why we got our early grants is because I was able to present the dream and the situation and my personal capacity to follow through that got those first grants. And wow, when you get the financial as well as the emotional support from experienced people or organizations, for all the folks out there that are doing NGO work and are just starting... It does feel great, doesn't it? Because it gives you, it's a little bit of a Wizard of Oz thing. Somebody else believed in you and you believe in yourself more and you are even more motivated because you want their donation is, is like an investment and you want to, you want to honor it and celebrate it and do good by it. And it's just such a win-win and it really changes your, you, you know, you, you it, it is just so pleasurable and delightful to think that you have found a person that loves what you love or an organization and together it really is a partnership and that feels that feels great you feel stronger because of it
0: amazing it just reinforces your own strengths and belief in yourself that's such an amazing and powerful message erica okay so uh you received a couple of grant from different places and different ngos uh sorry different donors um how was that money used what were your major items that you spent those money uh that money for
1: the same things but on a smaller scale than now and that is equipment food medicine and caregiving salaries and that was what we asked for at the beginning and that's still what we ask for all the time um That just and I think most NGOs will have some similar, you know, will come down to a few line items that have you know various details. But you just get when you're so familiar with your work, and animal care is very straightforward. Um, You there's also I I left a category of education and public outreach. Um, Those are also in the mix very much so, and advocacy. But those those in the very first. The very first instance it was money for medicine money money for housing for the animals and transportation all
0: right so the initial model was to bring animals and then try to treat them as much as possible now uh, animal aid and limited has grown so much and has become something larger and different what's your current operating model look like or is
1: it still the same uh, that's also a great question our operating model um is uh, our, our grand plan is that, and this has evolved and taken um, refined its shape over the years of doing it. but we feel that animal rescue in the context of India is a profoundly important way of awakening compassion in Indian people in this region because they see results, they can take part in it, they can actually help in rescues, they help by calling, definitely, they can follow up with visits. And that's a step in our ultimate goal of trying to inculcate people in people the desire to stop hurting animals for all and any purposes. Not to eat them, not to wear their clothes, not to kill them for any commercial value. But we'll never reach that goal Unless, unless people realize that animals are individuals with reasons for being that are all their own, that they're not here on earth just to serve humanity. They are here because they have their own reasons, and it's our privilege to support that, just as we would support trees and clean waterways and fresh air. Um, and so rescue is uh, is a tool toward the end of achieving a a status of recognition that animals have basic rights that we need to protect, that all people need to protect.
0: That's such a powerful story. Thank you for sharing that story with us, Erica. And I, I can personally attest to this, uh, Fellow rock stars, if you donate any money towards Animal Aid Unlimited, you will get this huge personal email from Erica or her daughter Claire thanking you and how that money is helping towards all those animals that they are trying to help out. It's it's so personal and it's so touching. I, I just love what you guys are doing. It's it's totally non-scalable and that's where the beauty of this whole whole NGO lies you're doing non-scalable things that get to people's personal sides that's such an amazing thing uh you touched briefly about the videos so I must admit that some of the people who are listening to this podcast so far and have stuck to this far are probably because they have seen your videos at some point of time sooner uh, at some point of time and I want to ask like how do you make so professional quality videos
1: Oh, that's, um, well, Claire, my, uh, our daughter will be thrilled to say, hear you say professional quality, just practice. She has not had any formal training in doing it, but um, she's been a keen observer of the videos that she has liked that other people have made about, uh, that are short documentary style videos. And uh, I think the, um, being a student of YouTube and just watching like, what do I like? What, what? when do i get bored and start throwing my fingers in a in a video and when am i riveted what role does music play how can i edit this more and more tightly so that i can uh, you know re- uh, get a video that tells a story within 3 or 4 minutes um, and what and and so you know and even things like what your tagline is in the subject line of a video uh, is probably one of the things that we spend the most time on. We have like nine words and we don't just come up with the first. We have to make them, some of them keywords. They have to have emotional impact. They have to guide people about what to expect in the in the video. And all those elements um, are, are are something that you refine and you can do kind of market research by just seeing what kind of response you get. Like what, what are the comments that people make? Uh, to your videos on Facebook or YouTube. What letters do you get? Um, What money is raised? Some some of the videos that have been personal favorites may not generate as much enthusiasm. They just don't get as many views. And so we ask ourselves and critique all the time, like, wonder why this one didn't do so well and this other one just soared and got picked up by 10, you know, the Daily Mirror, the, you know, uh, we've we've had an, a number of uh, not just bloggers but real national f- newspapers take our stories, and so we try to figure out what was it that we did in presenting the story that appealed to them and give gave it a a shape that they could that they could promote or, or uh, include in their in their news. So I think this, in summary, Tushar, you just have to. Look at results all the time and try to figure out, and it's, it's a puzzle, what it was that, that appealed so much to people. One of the simplest videos that we ever made was a puppy that um, got stuck in road tar, and the whole video was really just people using soapy water and oil to get the tar out, and that video has had millions of views. And, you know, you, it didn't require that was done. That was two or three years ago when Claire was just learning how to do it. So there, there wasn't much editing. The music was good, but you know, nothing to write home about, but there was, there were elements that were so sincere and authentic in the patience of the people that were cleaning that puppy. And the puppy was so cute. And the camera work was so intimate and close to the face of the puppy, um, partly even just by luck but it was through that that we were learning like okay people want to have a relationship with a particular animal or person it's you know crowd scenes are not and sometimes they're appropriate but I think it's safe to say for all NGOs that would be trying to promote their work people give to people nine times out of ten and they they need to have a sense that they're knowing the person and your viewers are smart. They're looking at the background. They're looking at the eyebrows. They're looking to see, is this person for real? That's doing this work. Are they, you know, or are the, or are they just posing because they're they're in front of a camera and they're, you know, and so critiquing your work and, and letting every day be kind of a market market uh, review or, or assessment, um, needs to be a habit that you don't just apply on your strategic planning session day, but something that you think about kind of all the time. How can I, how can I do this more effectively?
0: Great. I love the code, people give to people. That's such a powerful message, fellow rock stars. People do not give to machines. People give to people because they feel connected to each other. Um, so try to implement that, If especially if you're t- starting that NGO or you're starting that organization, be that face. Describe a little bit about your personality and try to make that connection behind why you are doing that. People believe in reason and people believe in people. All right, sounds great. Um, Erica, so how does animal aid earn its revenue or what are the sources of revenue for animal aid currently?
1: Today, almost all of it comes from individual donors. Um, As as against, I mean to say, we in the early days really relied more on foundations like Humane Society who were fantastic and, and several other organizations that were um, had the capacity to, to make donations to small seed, you know, seed money to new groups. But that's not the case. Now we get no money from the government, either the U S or Indian government. It's all from private donors. And I would say that the average size of a donation is probably like $30 or I in, in rupees um, I would say it's, you know, 2000 rupees or so. And, um, as an average size. in we have many Indian donors. And when I say many, I would say that um, among all our donors, that that's probably at this, this year, it's probably 10% Indian donors. But the, um, in previous years, it has been like twenty or thirty percent, and the reason that that percentage has gone down is not because Indians support us less. There are far more numerically, but because of our video popularity, we're grabbing from a whole worldwide audience now. So many new donations come in from Switzerland or Thailand, you know, places unexpected places, because we have uh, ex- we're we're being exposed around the world now. But Indian enthusiasm has done nothing but grow.
0: Amazing. And since it is Christmas time, I think you fellow rock stars who are listening to this should get on your computer or your cell phone and donate to Animal Aid Unlimited as soon as possible. And you will get a nice, very lengthy response from Erica and Claire, right?
1: That is such a beautiful thing. Thank you, Tushar. An unexpected plug for Animal Aid. Let me give people perspective. It costs on average $30 to save the life of an Indian street animal. Of course, some require more money and some less, but that's an average. And if you want to give yourself a treat today, save the life of an Indian animal because it feels fantastic. And I personally am woo woo enough to believe that that animal, whoever he or she is out there will thank you in personal ways that you really will hear with your heart.
0: Amazing. And I will have the link for you in the show notes so that you can just follow and donate. Okay. Uh, Erica, is there anything else that I should have asked, but
1: I did not? Tushar, I I can only think that uh, a warm, warm welcome to anybody that can visit or volunteer at, at animal aid uh, is something I should mention. It is really easy to volunteer you can download a, man, a, a manual for volunteering from our website that kind of tells you what to expect, but you do not need any formal training. And you don't even need to have a vast experience with animals. If you have a hunch that you would like to work with animals, we have baby calves that need to be fed. We have many disabled dogs that need to be played with and loved and stimulated intellectually. Um, we have dogs that can be walked. We have uh, donkeys that need to be brushed. And we also have the most loving people that are other volunteers and our staff. And sometimes the people that come to volunteer for animals really, I think are, are as much motivated by just being in a kind of a sanctuary environment where everybody is pretty sweet all the time. And so we just welcome you absolutely warmly anytime you can come.
0: Great. So Erica, we'll close the interview with the parting piece of advice you have for the the fellow rock stars and the best way to get in touch with you.
1: Okay, my last piece of advice is don't wait to become rich before you become a person that supports the cause or the causes that resonate with your heart. Because even a very small gift and even a very limited time to volunteer is, is all it takes from all of us to change the world and make it a more beautiful place. And everyone that's listening and everyone among us will find that we're the biggest beneficiary. Pers- weep ourselves of anything from our heart that we give to someone or something else. So that's my my parting advice is don't wait. Don't wait as long as I did. I was in my 40s before I started giving to my cause and I look back on my life and I think if only I had done it earlier because it's been the greatest thrill and the most beautiful fun that I ever ever could have dreamed of so do not wait and to get in touch with me uh, please anytime you can email me my personal email is Erica, E-R-I-K-A, Abrams, A-B-R-A-M-S, at yahoo.com, or to Animal Aid Unlimited. It's just info at animalaidunlimited.org. And I really promise that I will write you back. You can talk about anything. You can talk about animals in your lives or your NGO that's maybe not even related to animals. Because I am sympathetic to anybody that's trying to get something off the ground,
0: Amazing. And for fellow rockstars who just missed that, we will have that in the show notes and on our website on www.repodcast.com. And fellow rockstars, as Mahatma Gandhi said, people often become what they believe themselves to be. And that's what every great entrepreneur starts with, a belief. Keep believing in yourself and I hope to see you soon. Till then, keep rocking.